Hello, welcome to IntelliCast, Season 3, Episode 29. Is it Episode 29? No, doing... Episode 33. 33? Why do I have 29 here? It's episode... Season 3, Episode 33. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, this is Brian Lamar and Producer Brian. Hello, Brian. How are you? I'm doing good. It's, you know, it's kind of weird saying, how are you, when, you know, we just spoke for 10 minutes before, like, seconds ago. I don't know. I know. <laughs> um, hey, thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by EMI Research Solutions. You can reach us at IntelliCast at EMI-RS.com. Follow us on Twitter, EMI underscore research, or IntelliCast1. I'm happy to say, and I'm sure you are really happy to say, that IntelliCast1 Twitter handle is back live. It is. Yeah, I got that email saying... You've been verified. You're old enough to have a Twitter account. <laughs> After, I mean, it was out for a while, right? Like five days? Yeah, it came back up, I want to say Sunday. <laughs> yeah, that was a big faux pas on my end. Um, also, you can reach us, voicemail or text at 513-401-5463. We've had some texts recently. Maybe we'll talk more about it next week. But I, here, let me just tell you this, Brian. I'm tired of all the texts saying that they enjoy our podcast at 1.5 speed. Why is that? I don't know. Like it's just we're getting text after text. I don't know what's going on, but we're getting pranks of 1.5 speed. I don't know where it's coming from. It's they're wrong. I don't know either. I I tried listening to stuff sped up. I can't do it. It sounds like chipmunks. Yeah. Not for me. Agreed. Um, we have a great guest today. We're continuing our special speaker series around data quality. It's Tia Maurer, who lives here in Cincinnati. And man, what a job title. Group scientist for products research testing at Procter & Gamble. Um, Great interview because, I mean, first of all, she's a chemist. And I haven't been nervous on interviews many. But for some reason, I was pretty nervous about this one because knowing how smart she is. Um, the chemistry background really kind of drove the way she thinks, I think. Yeah. Can can I say we've talked to, a, over the last, let's call it month, six weeks, we've talked to a lot of smart people. It's getting to be a little intimidating. Yeah. Well, I have a list here. Thank you for mentioning that. We've had Steve Bernard in the link group, talked about healthcare and how they think about data quality a little bit differently, I think, than others because of the special circumstances of healthcare research. We had Terry Crawford of MMR Research Associates, and that was a lengthy conversation, more of traditional data quality, I think. And he's, you know, he's a longtime researcher, like Steve is of Link Group, um, that's kind of had a lot of different roles in research and thought about data quality. Before that, we had John and Jeremy Zogby of John Zogby Strategies. Um, and then before that, we had Vignesh Krishnan of Sample Chain, and you know, he has a data quality platform to help the industry improve data quality it's been a lot of smart people yes i know, I know. and that's not even counting the ones we talked to outside the podcast <laughs> right <laughs> right um a lot of smart people but yeah tia mauer will somewhat conclude that we'd love your feedback on the speaker series should we continue doing a speaker series with a topic would you like to know more about certain aspects of marketing research or sampling um any other topics you want to be a guest reach out to us we'd love to hear from you um before we get to tea i have a quick story are you ready i'm ready i have a public story yes <laughs> we haven't talked about We're it going back. we have not talked about this in a long time we um 
you know, since we don't see each other in person very often, you, we don't know kind of our day-to-day little shenanigans. And I, this past weekend, went to Charlotte, North Carolina and visited a friend there. And on my list of things to do, going to Publix was number one. And so she was not a Publix loyalist. She was unlike Mary and Shannon from episodes we did in February, I think, um, that talked about Publix. If you want to go back and listen to that, that, I think those are great episodes. But I turned on my appeal of Publix on those episodes and experiences that we had. And so now when I went to Charlotte, I wanted to go. I built it up to my friend. And first of all, she, she, my friend was having some medical issues. She was actually having heart palpitations. And so we were limited with the kind of stuff that we should do. And she's unsure. She's going through kind of the testing phase of figuring out what's going on. Is it anxiety? Is it stress? Is there something physical going on? Who knows what it is, right? Right. And so I told her on the way to Publix, I said, look, number one priority of going to Publix is a good public story. Number two, second priority is to maybe get you something to help your health. So number one priority, good story at Publix. Number two, get something with the health. Well, interestingly, we kind of accomplished both. We were in the vitamin aisle because she was looking for potassium, (laughs) which is kind of funny in itself. And she kind of bent over and her heart started racing. She had heart palpitations and she's like, oh, my God. Now, meanwhile, the last week she's been like, is it because of something I'm eating? Is it something I'm drinking? I'm cutting out caffeine. I'm cutting out gluten. I'm monitoring when I'm having heart palpitations. Is it eating after eight? Is it um, exercising too much? Is it stress? Is it work? You know, she's all over the place. But she bends over, heart palpitations. She's like, huh, that's interesting. I bent over to get some vitamins and my heart started going. We looked it up and we think that she has a hernia and that can be a hernia. There's a certain type of hernia that can cause heart palpitations from bending over. And we're pretty sure that's what it is. So Publix may have saved her life. That That's a pretty good public story. Yep. So hopefully that's, I mean, this is self-diagnosed. She doesn't have a medical degree, but I'm pretty sure that we've d- identified it. And thank you to Publix. And uh, by the way, the service there was outstanding. I bought some tea and lemonade for Mary Draper. Um, I bought, they had the little things of um, apple juice that we like. And um, I bought some raspberry sweet tea and I bought a lava cake and everything is outstanding. Another shout out to Publix, which is the, um, one of the new peas this year. I'm glad that you said that you bought stuff for Mary. Cause my question, bef- my question in my head prior to you starting that story was, was Mary aware of this? And is she going to listen and find out and be angry at us? Oh, you better believe that I texted Mary before, during, and after the public's visit. Um, they were all wearing masks. So North Carolina is a little bit behind Ohio in terms of like how they're opening up. And they all had Publix masks. And I tried to get a Publix mask so hard. I, I was going to steal one. Um, I thought about committing a crime to get one, but we couldn't get one. I was going to get one for Shannon and get one for Mary. And they would have probably worn it in a Kroger, I'm sure. 
you know that I am somehow on the public's like <laughs> promo Cause, list. Cause I, I, yeah. Yeah. So I got that email of them promoting their public face masks about yeah. a month oh, ago. Did. And I did, I did send it to Mary already. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Because we, we did buy some things, which we haven't given away yet. We have a, um, some gifts to give away, you know, when we're allowed to see people, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's my story today. No, for that those, is a pretty good one. For those of you that are like first-time listeners, hoping to hear TM Hour talk about data quality, sorry that I just talked 10 minutes on Publix. That's kind of what we do here, though. And if you are a avid listener, you probably got a kick out of that. Yeah. So anyway, let's go ahead to the TM Hour interviewer. She's the group scientist of products research testing at Procter & Gamble. She has a lot of viewpoints on data quality, and here you go. Joining us now is Tia Maurer. She is the group scientist for products research testing at Procter & Gamble. Tia, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. I'm so excited to have you to, to continue our discussion around data quality. And um, maybe we should start off. I know you're a little bit of your background, but maybe tell our listeners what your background is and your kind of your current role. Sure, I absolutely can. Um, I am by training a chemist. So um, Procter & Gamble has a uh, function called products research. Um, and it's it's uh, to speak to the consumers and find out what it is that they like about ideas and different products. And so I'm a technical translator between consumer language and our formulation team, where they give me a formula or a product to try and I share it with the consumer, the consumer gives feedback, and then I have to use my science background to translate that feedback into what levers do we need to push or change for our formulation to deliver exactly the experience that he or she is looking for. I've been in my role for 20, about 23 years doing products research, um, currently in beauty care, and before that I worked in fabric and home care. Okay, the, the thing I love about that is that you consider yourself to be a chemist, in in marketing research, I don't know if I've ever spoken to someone that said that they're a chemist, but I think that's probably why, like you're joining our conversation around data quality, is that chemistry is so vital in science, and um, you have probably a different set of eyes than most market researchers do. Most of us come from social sciences or a business background, and you come from a science background, right? Yes, that's true. I think that uh, Procter & Gamble actually has this function. We also have a consumer market knowledge function that does more of uh, marketing research when we're talking about you know, claims that we have or advertisements. We're focused more in products research on the actual product and the consumer's feedback to that. And as such, they, the company hires scientists to do that because we understand the formula and the chemicals that go into the cleaning products and or the beauty products, et cetera. And so we can not only use the scientific part of our uh, rigor and training to, you know, control the test and have a test leg and, and set up the design in the right way and our analytical skills to look at the data, but then also the science knowledge behind it, tying that into what we know about the formulation and what levers to push in order to delight the consumer. And all of this, all of this applies to survey research. I think all of the things that you're describing applies to survey research. And the reason that I wanted to have you on is because you've done a little roadshow talking about data quality, you presented at Quarks, and you've given presentations with Case, 
which I'm fortunate to be a part of, and you um, have experienced some things in the past around data quality. And since you have a you know a decent platform <laughs> with your job title that people really will listen to you, and as someone who commonly experiences people not listening to them, I really appreciate you having a strong voice about it because I'm passionate about the topic as well. And so maybe can you get some background on maybe the presentation and a quick little overview around it? Okay, sure. So the presentation that I've done, I'm sure it's searchable. Um, I think the first time that I did the presentation, or at least a subset of the presentation, was probably for MRMW um, in Cincinnati yeah. probably a year or so ago, maybe two years ago. I, I lose track of time. Um, but, um, <laughs> I've actually done the presentation as well at the quirks conference just in Brooklyn, um, which was back right pre COVID, maybe a week or two before we kind of had our, our nation shut down for the COVID crisis. Um, and as a result of that, um, presentation, I've had numerous people ask me to do encores or curtain calls of that. So I've done that webinar online three or four times, and I know it's been recorded in, in various, um, you know, platforms and stages. So I'm sure it's available if anybody Googled it. Um, but I, I got interested kind of in this whole data quality piece. When we um, at Procter & Gamble, we analyze all of our own data. So we don't do a lot of full service. We never have. Um, we might hire a full service supplier to, you know, program the survey for us and collect the data when we put a product out to ask people for their opinion. But when that data file comes back, we have the raw data and we as scientists actually analyze that data and understand what it means and kind of what we should do as a result of that. And we write our own reports and share that. Um, so when we look at that raw data, we can see where there's inconsistencies and things that don't make sense to us. And it throws up kind of a red flag and you start scratching your head going, hey, what's going on here? Um, when we've moved more into the DIY platforms, the software as a services, the, you know, the, the dashboards, we have always maintained the fact that we don't really use those automated dashboards. We pull the data down into our own platform. Right now we're using JMP to do our um, analysis. We pull it down and we look at it that way. And when you see that raw data and you're really able to look under the hood versus just seeing the, you know, the superficial pretty cover on an ugly book. Um, on the uh, dashboards, you can actually see that raw data and you can see where there's inconsistencies in the data and where there might be issues. Um, data quality goes way back though. For me, I used to run a research facility for Procter & Gamble within our fabric and home care division. And as such, so even though I work for the company, I was actually working on the supplier side for the company, right? So I was hired to run the research facility, to get local consumers to come in, try our products, look at our ideas and give feedback. So I was the person who was recruiting those panelists. And as such, I got to okay. see time and again, where people would try to, we call it running the screener, right? They would try to answer the way they thought that they needed to answer in order to qualify. So they weren't being fully honest with us to qualify for our studies, or they were saying that they used a product and then they would come in and I would have egg on my face because I was the owner of the research facility when the researchers told me this person didn't meet the criteria, you know, and you don't like to call people liars, but you know, you start yeah. tightening the reins on things and really making sure that you're providing good quality respondents 
And then you realize the impact that it can have on the business decisions if you have the wrong people guiding the ship, for lack of better words. Right. I didn't, I didn't know. So this was telephone kind of recruiting to that facility. Is that correct? Yes, we actually did telephone recruiting. Yeah. I think some of that has gone into an online pre-screening now since, but we always phone screened people. And so I trained the gals that worked for me to actually, when they were on the phone, you know, to try to detect whether they thought somebody was trying to run the screener. And I said, I would rather have you disqualify somebody than to put a square peg in the wrong hole. You know, because if we wear a PNG badge and we're doing this for what's best for PNG, you know, I would rather go tell the team I couldn't fill their study than to bring in the wrong people. Yep. And I think, I don't know about you, but I find I was a telephone interviewer as well. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you get an ear, like you kind of, you talked about the subtleties of like telephone recruiting. You kind of get an ear for this person may not be truthful and you kind of adjust the telephone screener to fit that. And it made me a better, much better researcher today, having experienced that much better questionnaire writer, especially because of going through the telephone part of it. But that is, I'm assuming that's really shaped what you do now when you're evaluating online. Is that correct? Yeah, you do have kind of a, I guess you call it a qualitative gut or something like that, right? As when you're looking for things, yeah. I think now knowing what I know and having that background of seeing, you know, and, and I'm not trying to say that 90% of people who get into studies aren't being honest. I, don't, I really don't think the number is that large. The problem is, you know, some of my data has shown that if you have even 15% of the people who get in either disengaged or dishonest, one of the two, and not really thoughtfully considering the questions, that is enough noise to change your business decision. And so you really have to be careful and you almost have to approach your data like it's a crime scene. <laughs> and I know that's going to sound really <laughs> funny as an analogy, but you kind of look at it going, should I trust it? And which parts of it should I trust? Yeah. So you are looking for things that look funny to you. Um, and then you're removing things based on suspicious behavior and only keeping in the things that look and that look right to you. And when I say right, it doesn't mean, oh, this confirms my hypothesis, so I decide to keep this. No, that's not what I'm suggesting. Um, but you can look at different things where people are writing in the open ends and I've had taco salad recipes in the open ends. Um, I've had, you know, <laughs> it just ridiculous stuff like that. So whether the person is just trying to be funny, um, I can't just assume they're trying to be funny and that they're giving me honest data the rest of the way through. I will give an example. Just two or three days ago, I ran a survey. The survey took two minutes to answer. Two minutes was all it was. And I had somebody finish that in 26 seconds. It's not humanly possible <laughs> to have finished that survey in 26 seconds. That's one. And then I want to say that I had a good number of people in that survey who were females who claimed that they were bald. <laughs> I don't think 11% of the female population is bald. And if they are, they're wearing some pretty good wigs. <laughs> And, and you're probably not doing your job in hair care at Procter & Gamble, if that's true. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. We wouldn't be selling as much yeah, that, shampoo. That's one of the, <laughs> right. That's, that's one of the things that I like about your presentation is you have such awesome examples of poor quality that really brings it to life. And, and in some ways kind of shocks people, especially people that, you know, I, you and I look at 
poor open-ends and bad data all day long, but I don't think most researchers do. And you have the ability to say, I've seen this, this, and this, and with very, with very specific examples. And then you mentioned um, you could make a different business decision based upon that. And so I think that's, I like to shock people. I like to kind of scare people on the data quality. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I think that people need to hear that kind of tough love to really shake them into taking it seriously because so much goes into data quality. And, you know, I think what I'm just trying to say is that it's just really good examples. Yeah, I, I think I appreciate that. I think that it was interesting because I just did a webinar recently and you could see the chat and the questions that were coming through the chat. And I think that there were a lot of people feeling very comfortable um, with themselves because they do a lot of qualitative research. And some of the examples that I was sharing were more quantitative in nature. And I would say to those folks, you're fooling yourself, right? Because in the, in the quantitative data, it's just easy for me to make the business case because most people will only qualify their initiatives on quantitative data. But knowing that I ran a research facility for Procter & Gamble where I could actually you know, see firsthand the people who tried to get into studies. And if you, if you stand, this is locker room talk for lack of better words, but if you stand outside of the research facility and as the ladies are leaving, they start talking and saying, hey, did you know that so-and-so is running a study across town? And if you just tell them they right. use secret deodorant, you can qualify for that study. You should call in. And so there right. are people who need to get a job to get money. And they, they think their full-time job is to participate in studies all over town and sign up for everything, um, unfortunately. And it's happening in qualitative research, so don't fool yourselves. Yes. Yeah. We don't talk – well, I work in online quant, and I don't ever hear a lot of conversation about poor quality in um, traditional qual. Mm -hmm. And that's a good point that I'm sure it exists. I'm sure that people talk in – um, kind of cheat their way and fraud their way into um, interviews because I mean that that pays pretty well um, if you can get into a focus group or a one-on-one -on -one interview. Those I mean we're paying pennies to the dollar and quant to what they're paying in fall. Um, so there's um, a lot more incentive there. Well, it's interesting that you so, say that because Brian, when you say we're paying pennies to the dollar, if we have really long surveys and we're paying pennies to the dollar, people are turned off by that and they want to make more incentive. So that's even more reason for them to fraud the system and go through as quickly as they can to amass more money. And so the, the longer the survey, the more um, harder, it, the harder the survey is to navigate, the more it turns off the honest people and the higher your proportion of fraud is going to be in that survey, for lack of better words, because the bots and the cheaters will stick with it because it doesn't take them any time at all to defraud the system, whereas the honest people don't stick with it. So your your percentage of honest people is smaller, I would argue, in your maybe yeah. in your quantitative, right? <laughs> yeah. Hope, yeah. Um, you mentioned incentives. I have a couple of things. Let me bounce this off of you. I think that we should be paying for terminates as an industry because we should be paying um, people for their time. And oftentimes, I'm not sure in your world, but in other areas of market research, we often have very long screeners. And for a lot of B2B research, especially, we have long screeners um, and we don't pay people for their time. 
And we know about 90% of people don't qualify for a survey. And therefore, 90% of people have a poor experience when taking a survey. And secondly, I think that we need to pay people better for their time. Um, I used to be, even a researcher, you know, we've been a researcher about the same amount of time. It used to be people took studies in order to kind of give back. It was to help shape products and services. And it was almost an altruistic um, reason, rationale for taking surveys. I think that's changed over time in a way. And we've mistreated respondents for so long with poorly designed surveys and asking the same questions over and over again. And, um, you know, we could probably talk a million, million different ways we mistreated them. But I think my big push is going to be improving the respondent experience. And so to pay people for terms in some cases, not all cases, but also improving the overall incentive. Is that something you agree with or disagree with? Yeah, I, I think that it does make sense. I think that we should be valuing people's time. Um, I would hate to, and, and and this happened too, you know, when you call and screen people on the phone for qualitative research, if you're screening them over and over and over again, at some point, and they don't qualify, they think that you're calling, asking those questions and collecting that data and not paying them for their time. And they feel like their time is not valued and then they want to drop off of the panel. Um, I know yeah. that we're, I don't have a, a better term for this, but we're surveyed to death. You can't go out and go from one store to a restaurant and home without having a cash register receipt that doesn't ask you to take a survey. Yeah. I mean, you, yep. it, you, any, in any day now you look on the web and you go from one web page to the next and they have a pop-up for you to answer a question to get into YouTube content or other premium content where, you know, you have to take a survey. So I think someone was saying that there were like 6 million surveys that go out every single day. And they said that it this was in a previous uh, conversation that I had. And they said they have it on good authority that the person who is telling that is telling the truth. And that's just in the US. So if there's only about 328 million of us, and there's 6 million right. surveys a day, and we're not taking right. one, then who's taking them all? Right. And so there are people who are, you know, trying to make money doing it. Right. I understand that. But I do think that we do there. There's a fine line to walk to walk. You don't want to pay too much where it becomes a huge. Yep. It's a draw for a scam. But I also think that you know, you can throw them a bone, right? I, I think that we do need to throw, you know, some money at some of the folks who are constantly disqualifying, because if you don't do that, then they just figure out how to lie to qualify. And that's not what you want in your data set. Completely agree. So do you have a, well, I'll ask you this question first. So you're on the client side. Um, how do you, how do you feel the industry is responding to poor quality overall without you know, throwing too many people under the bus. Um, it's not often that we get a client-side researcher to talk about data quality, especially as transparent as you are about it. I'd love to hear kind of um, how the industry is faring from your perspective, um, maybe what could be improved upon. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a tough, I think it's a battle for suppliers as well. Um, and I think, I think in the, in the, past, it's been a black box, right? Outside of, you know, yeah. people like P&G where we're getting our raw data and we're looking at it. Normally when we're getting our raw data from those suppliers, they've actually cleaned it up a little and taken out some of the garbage. So they over recruit, they let us know that they get a 65 or 70% return rate. 
I would argue it might be higher than that. And they're just taking out some of the garbage that they don't want to give us in the data file. And we're getting it. And it looks like a nice little gift with a, a bow on top. And so we're not seeing all of that. I think as times have changed and we've moved into an era where everything is DIY and we can see the raw data, there isn't any of that cleanup happening and it's becoming more apparent and it's raising more eyebrows and people are starting to see it and calling it out. Now, a long time ago when it was a black box, I think that these suppliers were trying to do something about it, right? Because not only were the people defrauding us by cheating through our surveys, they were also defrauding um, the supplier. And I'll explain that in two ways. One, in quantitative research, when they're going in, and this, this just happened last year, so I know that these things have happened before. Last year, a supplier told me that they were not just speeding through the survey to try to get the additional incentive. Instead, they had written a program so that they could bypass the survey altogether and land on the completed completes page and get paid. So all of a sudden, Procter & Gamble saying, hey, I only got 300 people. I didn't make my quotas. And this supplier is going, well, I have 600 who landed on my complete page. How can that be? Right? And so yep. when that happens, if they're paying those, that's not coming out of Procter & Gamble's budget. They're paying people right. and Procter & Gamble didn't get their data and we're going to demand to get what we paid for. So we're going to ask them to give us more sample, which now is going to cut into their profits because they've already paid these fraudsters. That's on the quant side. Yeah. If I look at the qual side, what happens is if I don't deliver to you when you're coming in as a qualitative researcher, good, solid respondents who are who they say they are, because people tend to forget what they lie about. So if they really are lying and not being honest to, to scam the screener, they're getting into the survey. Then they forget what they lie about. They can't perpetuate the lie in the research. And now I'm not wanting to use you as a supplier for my qualitative research because you've got crappy panelists, in my opinion, right? So, yeah. you know, it's not yeah. just hurting the Procter and Gambles and the, you know, the, the companies that are on the client side. It's also hurting the supplier side. So I think the suppliers have been battling for a while to try to stop it because clearly they have skin in the game. They've got a service and they want to sell a good service. Um, and I know that, you know, trust score and some of those um, true sample, Imperium, et cetera, those were all created to stop, you know, fraudulent and make sure people are who they say they are. Maybe they pay an electric bill or, you know, they have a credit report with their name on it at the specific address that they're claiming they live at that sort of thing, those things have been put in place by suppliers to try to mitigate some of that fraud. Do I think that they're stepping up the game now? Absolutely, because we can look under the hood now with DIY survey software, and they know that if they don't do it, their competition will do it. And so I think that there is a mad dash to try to figure it out. Now, at the same time, the crooks are figuring out how to defuse the bombs. And if you go and do a Google yeah. search... I, I can guarantee you, you can go down a rabbit hole that you can't get out of and you'd be up to all hours of the morning watching people say, here's how you run the screener. If you say that you're a, you know, 35 year old female with two kids and that you're married, you got a better chance of getting into a study. And if you, and, and to be honest, Brian, suppliers too have, and they've called them out on some of these blog boards, suppliers have also coached 
some of the respondents to give certain answers because they want to fill the study, even if they're filling it with people that don't otherwise qualify. And we at PNG yeah. have been able to determine that in some of our research, not just in the U.S., but in China and other countries as well. Yeah, you mentioned a lot there. And, you know, one thing I'll say is that, yeah, fraud is rampant. And I, I feel so bad for a lot of the companies that are traditional panels that have that built really good panels and mm-hmm. then these people have built scripts and bots and ways to fraud the surveys. And a lot of these companies now have to invest. You know, they don't know what hashing is. They don't know how to stop a script being built. I mean, they built basically built a good database of people willing to take surveys. And so, you know, the smaller ones, which is a lot of the companies that we work with, they've had really tough challenges because they don't have the money that, yeah. you know, the bigger bigger companies have and they have chief technologist officers and they can hire a team that to try to stop it. Um, so that's one thing. And I don't remember my other point, but I do think it's improving and we, we are putting a lot of effort around it. And you mentioned a lot of names. There's a lot more. I mean, we're both aware of a lot of new platforms that are out there to try to help the data quality. And I think we're on the right path. I think we're moving slower than I would hope in terms of improving quality um, and I'll just do, I'm assuming you agree with that as well. Yeah, I do. And I think part of this fraud detection has come about because of the financial industry, right? There are so many people trying to, you know, yeah. defraud, you know, banks and financial institutions and create accounts and scam and skim money off of your account when it's not their account. Um, and so a lot of these, you know, these fraud detection services has have come up as a result of financial institutions, but they've been reapplied to surveys and, you know, um, suppliers are, are taking advantage of that. Um, just like we said, we have to keep running faster than the fraudsters, unfortunately. Um, I think there yeah. was an article somewhere that said they think that fraud is about eight to 10% yep. um, of, you know, and, and I think one of the bigger problems is if there's no consequence, for the fraud. Yep. Right. So I know in other countries, if you steal something, they chop your hand off. I bet you there's not too many people without hands <laughs> in that country. Right. And because the yeah. you know jails are full or, you know, what have you, you know, you, you don't even get a slap on the wrist anymore for doing some of this stuff. And they just say, oh, it's too hard to prosecute or it's too hard to, you know, follow the you know, follow the ants to the, their home to try to figure out, you know, where it's coming from. And so they just don't do yeah. anything about it. And there have been police departments that have actually been hacked with ransomware and things like that. So yeah. it, it just it's not easy to follow the trail. Um, it's not easy to follow the breadcrumbs and, and people aren't thrown in jail and there's no consequences. So, you know, and if, if you can get rich quick um, and there's no consequences, then why not do it? Especially because let's assume we identify someone clearly committing fraud on a panel we chop off his hand and says no more surveys for you. He can go to literally dozens of other companies that are more than willing to accept him and send him surveys all day long. And that's one of the challenges of our industry that uh, Marshall Harrison, who um, used to work at Imperium, said this, and, it, and I agree with him, that we need as an industry kind of a global panelist ID, kind of like a social security number that's shared across panels. Yep. And... Um, you know, logistically, that's really tough to get everybody to work together on this, but it would help stop duplication across panels. But also, 
if we've identified, we could put together an industry-wide score of a respondent and block him across all panels. And that's something I think that we need to do because I think that we filter a lot of the bad respondents from one panel to another, unfortunately, because like you said, we there's the punishment doesn't fit. Um, we can't stop them anymore. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. I know when I did the local research, whenever we got a respondent that came into my facility that was doing something fraudulent, and I can give an example, we had somebody who was participating in an ongoing study, and she was taking home automatic dishwashing powder to use. This is, again, this is a number of years ago, probably 2010 or 12, something like that. And and she was taking it home, using it, and then coming back a couple, I think once a week or every other week to give her opinion to the research team, who then would give her another box of detergent. So she was getting free boxes of detergent. <laughs> Plus she was getting paid $60 for every time she came in and talked to them for a half an hour about her experience with the detergent. Well, she decided that she would, she needed more money than that. And so she put a one in front of her check so that we would pay her $160 instead of $60 for her visit. Oh my gosh. So not only did she lose all the future income from our facility because we blackballed her from the facility, we sent the police to get the money back from her. Um, so I don't know if she had a record, but she did produce the money and we got the money back. Um, and, and, you know, there was a consequence, right? I called around to all of the local agencies and I told them because I had good partnership with them. You know, I was calling the local Cincinnati agency saying, this is the person who's in our database. And this is kind of what this person did. I don't think that you want to recruit this person for any of your studies. And they said, thank you. We will take her out of our database. And they reciprocated whenever they saw somebody doing something or, you know, you know, turning in a product that was not what they were supposed to bring back and, and, you know, making fictitious data, they let me know as well so that I could strike that person or blackball that person from my database. So it is one of those things where wow. like, you're right. We do need to have one ID for every person. And when you find a bad apple, toss the bad apple out, don't toss it into another crate. <laughs> right. Oh, good analogy. We've already spoken almost 30 minutes on data quality. I will, uh, one more question. Where do you see kind of the future of market research or sample headed? Do you feel good about it? I mean, you're on some industry-wide committees. You're kind of out there talking to people. I'm just curious of your kind of perspective. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of brands there. They're raising eyebrows, you know, seeing the presentations that I'm doing and sharing the data saying, guys, you know, this is a really large, this is larger than you think that it is. And it's actually impacting business decisions. And when somebody as large as Procter & Gamble says, look, we're making million and billion dollar business decisions that were the wrong decision because we trusted the data and the data shouldn't be trusted. I think people start to get really concerned, even the folks that are getting full service because they're not looking under the hood, right? So they're starting to ask the questions, right. what do I need to do? What kind of traps do I need to put in my surveys? What do I need to do? Do I need to rescreen my qualitative respondents? How do I make sure that I'm getting you know, who I want to be getting? And so I think by getting the brands more um, educated on the issue, and the impact that the issue actually has on the business decisions that they're making, and they're not trusting their data, that puts pressure on the suppliers, that puts pressure also. And I don't think it's just the suppliers that own this, right? We own it. We need, we own shorter surveys. We own better respect. You know, when I go out shopping for a car, you get what you pay for, right? 
do you want a yep. cheap car that's going to break down on the way home? Or are you going to pay a little bit more and get something that's going to be better quality and is going to last longer? So, you know, we have some responsibility in this as well. And I think if we can all come to the table and admit that there's a problem and suppliers are admitting that there's a problem, there's a problem and they're doing everything that they can think of. But maybe if we get all the right heads together, we all do some research on research and we don't write a bazillion white papers about it to tell the fraudsters how to <laughs> detonate the bombs, then we can make our bombs work for a, a long time. <laughs> so I think the industry is headed in a positive direction and we know that we have to solve this, but I think it's a together and not a pointing the fingers like, oh, well, you need to shorten your survey or, oh, you need to you know, get me better quality respondents. I think we all own it and we all have to come to the table and come up with a solution. And that's what's happening with this uh, initiative with CASE and some of the research on research that we're doing. That was an amazing, that was an amazing last one minute that you just said. I don't think I can add anything to it. I completely agree. That was impressive. Let's move on to our last segment. This is a, a little four P segment that we do. And this is to get to know T a little bit better. We took the marketing mix, four P's, and we kind of mixed it up a little bit. And the first P is perform. Do you have a hidden talent, Tia? Is there something that most people don't know about you? Do I have a hidden talent? Most of my close friends know, um, but <laughs> I, I would say that anybody who's not super close to me would not know that um, I – two things. One, I, I'm, I am a performer, right? So I, I twirl batons. And I twirled batons competitively oh, wow. all the way up into my early 30s at a national level. Um, and I still oh, take them out. So my neighbors know it every now and again because they end up out on the driveway and I'm doing cartwheels and tossing those things around like I'm young. And, and my body doesn't tell oh, me the next God. day that I'm young. But but I, I think I am. So therefore, I think therefore I am. Right. So that is one. That's and okay. I've taken that performance to a different level. Now, um, I have ballroom danced with my husband for the past 18 years, I think it's been. Yeah, 18 years. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow, those are great performs. Two of the best we've had. <laughs> if you had professional baton was only one of your two. That's amazing. I bet that's a stress reliever, too. Like, going out and throwing a baton around is probably a good way during the... My next question is pandemic. Yeah. Um, thinking of stress... What is something fun or quirky that you've started doing since the quarantine started? Do you have anything kind of odd that you kind of found yourself doing? Because I have listed a lot in the, on these podcasts. Well, we have to entertain ourselves in some manner. And my husband yeah. and I, um, my husband and I, in, in long story short, my mom and my grandmother, um, my, my mom's mom, my maternal grandmother, are both huge Elvis Presley fans. And they have been for a long time. They buy each other little Elvis knickknacks and things like that for Christmas. So I grew up listening to his music and seeing his movies, you know, through both of them. Um, I've been to Graceland. Somebody told me, hey, you need to go during Elvis week, which is commemorative of the week that he died. There's a huge Elvis tribute artist competition where guys from all over the world look, dress up like him. And I'm not talking jelly donut eating Halloween costumes. These guys, <laughs> these guys pay $5,000 to have rhinestones hand put on costumes by and cut from the pattern that was used to make Elvis's actual costumes. They go for authenticity and they get in these competitions. Wow. They sound like him. They look like him. They wiggle like him. And there's a huge competition every uh -huh. year. And in order to get in that competition, you have to qualify at a regional competition in your 
um, country. I say country because this happens in Japan. It happens in Australia. It happens in uh, Latin America. The UK sends a winner. It's in Germany. Um, and there's probably about 12 or so festivals across the U.S. every year. And you have to qualify. And if you're number one, you get to go during Elvis week. And the, the winner of the entire competition, which started in 2007, um, gets $20,000. And they get endorsed by Elvis Presley Enterprises. Oh, no. And I will say the rest is history in that they basically have their career um, set for them in that they travel and they do tributes to the king. So they aren't trying to impersonate him. They're trying to bring him to life and they're paying tribute because most of these guys absolutely love Elvis music. And so they pay tribute to him as they call themselves Elvis tribute artists. So long story short, um, a lot of these tribute artists are out of work right now because they're stuck in their homes and they can't leave. So they can't go out and yeah. do their shows. And so these guys are actually on Facebook and they're doing their shows on Facebook. Um, and so I have been following them and, and inter being entertained in my home by Elvis tribute artists who can play guitars and the drums and they sing. And uh, some of them will put their full costume on. And, and there's actually a Elvis and Friends across the world. There's a website de dedicated and they run every weekend, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, back to back Elvi plural of Elvis, um, back to back Elvi yeah. every hour on the hour. And you can watch these guys actually perform and see some of them. And they've now gotten to the point where they're running virtual competitions. And so you can pay, they create a Facebook account or a zoom and you can go on and for five or $10, you can watch a contest and they're going to send their winner to Graceland. So if that isn't one of the oddest things you've probably heard, there you go. <laughs> oh, all right. Producer Brian, that is the answer that I'm looking for when I ask this question, right? I'm <laughs> that, not even sure what to say to that. That's that's what I want when I ask that question because I have exposed myself to very similar kind of crazy things that I've become obsessed with, like marble racing. Like I wrote that down. I wrote yeah. that down as she was talking. I'm still watching marble racing, but that's the thing that I'm looking for when I ask the pandemic question is I am now obsessed with this Elvis tribute and you can do three minutes on Elvis tribute. That's, that's amazing. That's a, that's perfect answer. There, that's when we battle season. Right. That's quirky. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not even going to ask you any more peace. We have to close the interview with that because that was so good. Tia, thank you so much for coming on. I, I'll, I appreciate your passion towards this and I appreciate your voice and transparency doing this, you know, webinar and talking about data quality, because I think you're really trying to lift us up as an industry and um, I, I really appreciate it. So thank you for coming on. All right. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, bye. All right, Brian, first of all, my favorite, not just my favorite pandemic answer of all time, maybe my favorite P answer of all time. What, what do you think? She had two really good P answers. Yeah. Not just the Elvis. Right. What is it? What was her term? Uh, Elvis tribute artists, not Elvis impersonators. Right. Tribute artists. That she's donating to. That's yeah. That's right up there with your marble racing. <laughs> yeah. Two peas in a pod right there. The and then also twirling. the baton twirling. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Future guests on the podcast, come with that. Like the, the crazier, the better. That's what we're looking for. By the way, a, a little secret about this. When we have guests on, you always put together kind of a loose agenda, right? Right. And um, so people can be a little bit prepared for the answer to the questions. We're trying to help them out a little bit. 
sometimes we'll throw a prince question at them or a public's question at them and it throws them off. But generally they know the questions that are coming. And some people are more open to questions. Some people aren't. She got the agenda, but didn't see it. Um, right. She was unprepared to answer those questions. She was. Yeah. She did not see the attachment in the invite right. and only Especially opened it, only opened it within like two minutes of us starting to record. Right. And so she was not prepared to answer those questions. And she's like, ah, I'll just, I'll just think about it when you ask it. Like that was amazing. So, but to talk about the content interview, I love her because she is not afraid of, she won't pull any punches and working at Procter and Gamble, her voice has a little more weight, I think, than a supply side researchers, obviously because of the volume of money and the name of Procter and Gamble, uh, both locally and nationally, and people will listen to her, and they should, because we need to fix data quality. And while there's a lot going on in the industry to fix data quality, needs to be more. And, you know, there's a collaboration going on with her and other client-side researchers and some other supply-side researchers that I think will help. But um love the interview. I think I could have talked to her, honestly forever about data quality i looked at the clock and we're close to 30 minutes and i want to be mindful over time because we could just come so much further that's so yeah right and we chatted with her for a good 20 minutes after we finished recording as well yeah no we could have used that time to you know get more p questions out of her i bet she had a print story oh i'm sure she did (laughs) maybe even a public story oh i didn't get a print story but if you haven't if you can talk five minutes on elvis you can talk from Prince, guaranteed, and I guarantee you she's been to Publix. Maybe Different we'll question again someday. Yeah, go ahead. Do you think there are Prince tribute artists out there, and is this now going to be your new thing to go track oh, them down? I'm kind of scared to Google that, um, but I bet there are, right? Are they Are they going to be as good as the Elvis ones? Probably not, but you don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll Google it and I'll be donating to people's um, GoFundMe by the end of the week. I don't know. I know there's at least one because here in the town I live in, Springboro, Ohio, very small town, um, we they do a concert series in the park. So we have a park that has a little amphitheater in it and they do free concerts in the summer. And last year they had a Prince tribute band come. And that is one of the ones I went to. It was great. Yeah, knew knew all the songs they were playing, and these concerts are packed. Like you're probably talking a three four hundred people in this park to listen to these all the time. You're crammed in there. Obviously, they're not going on right now, even though they are outdoors. With just the amount of people that come to them, there's no way they can have them. But I know there's at least one Prince tribute guy out there. All right. Well, when I'm allowed to go listen to some live music, then maybe I'll I'll, I'll look that up. Yeah. Well, I think we should shut it down. I hope you all enjoyed the speaker series. Um, Thank you, Brian Peterson, for all the work you did. And I know it's a lot of work to get all these speakers organized in the interviews. And it's harder when we have guests because of, you know, we want to be accommodating to them. And they're very busy people. And uh, um, we're cranking out two of these a week. And it's a heck of a lot more work from you and intern Emma than it is for me. So I appreciate it. Thank you all for listening. No problem. Yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, we'd love a voicemail or text, 513-401-5463, or email or follow us on Twitter. Thanks, everybody. Have a good week.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.